Well, good morning. And good morning to those of you joining us from the CLC. We're excited to be together, even though we're not in the same place as we pray for unity. We're excited that we are a unified body of believers. Before I get too far into the message this morning, let me just say thank you. Thank you for the sweet time of fellowship last Sunday night. I continue to say there are two words that describe last Sunday night to me, and that is humbled and overwhelmed. And um, it was just a sweet experience. So thank you for, for that moment of celebration. Now, let me invite you to take your Bibles and turn to, I actually have two passages. One is not listed there, but first of all, flip to 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 7. They're both kind of near one another, so it won't be too difficult, but 2 Timothy 4, verse 7, and then also to Hebrews chapter 12. We're going to kind of be looking at them back to back in a moment, so you'll just want to keep your your place there. <clears throat> and as you're going there, let me just ask you, have you ever thought about movie endings? The ending is supposed to wrap the story up into a nice, neat bow that leaves you sitting back in your seat going, wow, that was a great story. Unless, of course, it's a sequel, which has you supposedly sitting on the edge of your seat saying, wait a minute, what happens next? But since life isn't a sequel, let's just stand with the, stick with the ending. And, and let's think about the ending of some great movies. I don't know if anybody here is old enough to remember, but I, I started thinking back to some just wonderful, epic, epic movie endings. And um, I remember being shown one in like world history as a junior in high school. It's this one called Gone with the Wind. Talk about an epic ending. Rhett staring into Scarlett's eyes. Frankly, my dear, we're not going down that in the pulpit today. Um, <laughs> maybe you watched Casablanca. Here's looking at you, kid. I love what he said beforehand. I've got a job. I've got a job to do. Where I'm going, you can't follow. What I've got to do, you can't be any part of. Someday you'll understand that, but not now. So here's looking at you, kid. Man, who can forget what Clarence wrote in the book at the end of It's a Wonderful Life? Dear George, no man is a failure who has friends. And at that moment, the bell on the tree rings, and Zuzu in her father's arms says, Look, Daddy, teacher says every time a bell rings, and y'all have seen that. I told you it's an epic ending. You've memorized it. Not to exclude my younger friends here this morning, and if you haven't seen it, it's not a spoiler alert, but come on, Mary Poppins returns. The park scene with the balloons at the end of that movie, and there's nowhere to go but up. As I thought about just epic movie endings, well, I thought this one might be appropriate for today. Let's check out the video screen. 
guys be glad I cut out the first four minutes of that scene we'd all been a mess classic movie endings and of course then there's music if you were alive in the 70s maybe you remember David Gates he put out an album and the title song has these words of part of the chorus goodbye doesn't mean forever let me tell you goodbye doesn't mean we'll never be together again. For my millennial friends, it's hard to believe it was the year 2000, but in sync, bye, bye, bye. What would I have said? That's the question that I've asked myself for the last... 36 years. It was February 15th, 1983. Received a phone call late in the morning saying, you need to hurry up and get to your parents' home. When I did, I was met by my mother in tears who informed me that my father had passed away unexpectedly that morning while at work. I was 21 years old. It was just a few months before Debbie and I were to be married, and I got to tell you, I felt cheated. I felt cheated out of a lot. I didn't get a chance to say goodbye, so what would I have said? Since that day, I've often wondered, what would I have said to him? What would I have said if I'd known the time was coming to a close? And I realized that even though there were things unsaid, over the course of the 21 years that I had my father in my life, we had said we had done a lot together. Did I have regrets about things unsaid and things undone? You bet I did. I still do to this day. But I realized that we had said a lot. Sometimes I said too much. There were times where I didn't say enough, and there were times, unfortunately, where I said nothing at all. But in the end, I know, I know beyond a shadow of a doubt that my father loved me unconditionally, and he knew that I loved him. Can you tell that I'm struggling with what to tell you this morning? 
when I looked at farewell talks in Scripture, looked for inspiration, they were farewell talks because they were all dying. I thought, that's not going to do. I mean, I'm dying and I'll anticipate the day where I stand before my Creator. I pray it's not today. Can't use those. So what do you say? What, what do I say at this moment? So for the past several weeks since Pastor Chris asked me to share this morning, I've wrestled with what would my parting words to you be? After serving you and being served by you for over 23 years, these are my final words to you as one of your pastors here at Bonsack. What do I say? How do I wrap up all these years together in one sermon what do I say that communicates everything that's yet to be communicated? And the more I wrestled with this question, the more I realized I can't do it. <laughs> because we've done a lot together. We've experienced a lot together over the years. And there have been times where I've said too much. Times where I haven't said enough and times where I've said nothing. Then during our youth power hour a week and a half ago, the youth were giving us a send off and I was asked a question, and the question was this, if I could give one word of advice, what would it be? And without even thinking about it, this is what rolled off of my mouth or something to this effect. I, I said, invite Jesus to be your personal Lord and Savior, and then never stop chasing after him. And that's when it hit me. That's what I wanted to share with you this morning. That's what I want my parting words to be. Invite Jesus to be your personal Savior and then never stop chasing after Him. So for all of my country music fans here today, we can be like Diamond Rio and wish for one more day. But I'd rather remind you of a Tim McGraw song in which he said we need to live like we were dying. When we enter into a relationship with Jesus Christ, it begins a lifelong journey of following him in which we should continue to seek to grow in Christ-likeness, to become more like Jesus so people see less of us and more of him in our lives. When it's all been said, when I come to the end, to that moment in which I'm getting ready to meet my Father, what do I want to have been said? Look at that passage in 2 Timothy 4, verse 7. Paul said this, I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. That's what I want. I want it to be said, I have fought the good fight finished the race and I've kept the faith. And so how do we do that? How can I encourage you to live like you were dying and to have that mentality, a 2 Timothy 4, 7 mentality as you continue on your faith journey as we're separated? So with that in mind, let's look at Hebrews chapter 12. Beginning in verse 1, this is what the writer of Hebrews says. Therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us throw off everything that hinders 
and the sin that so easily entangles. And let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and the perfecter of faith. For the joy set before him, he endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured such opposition from sinners, so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. So how are we going to live like we were dying? 2 Timothy 4, 7 and the writer of Hebrews line them both up perfectly. It happens as we fix our eyes on Jesus, the author, the pioneer, the perfecter of our faith, as we run the good race, as we finish the race and fight the fight. It helps us to keep our faith. Look back at verse 1. Therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, the word therefore in this verse is referring us back to chapter 11. And if you look back at chapter 11 of Hebrews, what you discover are it's filled with these people in their testimonies, witnesses that the Bible calls heroes of our faith. People like Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, like David and Rahab and Joseph and so many more. People that we can look at as examples of others who have fought the good fight, who have finished the race, who have kept the faith. I think back about people too many to name who have been part of this body of believers in the time since I have been here, the Bill Loops, the Eva Creases, the Jimmy Browns, the Jess Hayses. Those people who fought the good fight, who helped us to see what it looks like to keep our eyes on a prize and to finish the race. And they're no different than these heroes that are listed in chapter 11 of Hebrews. And they all remind us, they give us hope, they give us encouragement. They're meant to remind us, to inspire us to continue to live out a life that is worthy of our calling. Now make no mistake about it, these heroes of the faith that are mentioned in Hebrews 11 or these people, names too many to even recount at this moment, who are people here, they were real people. And they were far from perfect. There were times in life where they sinned, where they messed up. These heroes that are listed here messed up royally at times. But in the end, they sought to live their lives by faith. We have the opportunity to look at the witnesses and the testimonies of others who have run this same race of faith to find strength, to find endurance, to find encouragement, to inspire us to continue on in our faith journey when it comes to fighting this fight so that when it's all been said and when it's all been done we can say I fought the good fight I finished the race and I've kept the faith in 2008 I had a unique opportunity to travel to Italy and lead youth ministry conferences with the Italian Baptists and while we were there over that two-week period for a number of days we were in the city of Rome and so I was able I was fortunate enough to be blessed to go and to tour the ruins there in ancient Rome. And, man, when you walk up on the Colosseum, there's just something about that place. 
And when you go in and you look at the stands and you look down on that field and you understand that the gladiators fought there, that people were, man, sentenced to death there. There's a variety of things that you experience as you take that moment in. And I can't help but think about that Colosseum in Rome as I read this passage in Hebrews. The writer of Hebrews tells us that if we're going to run this race of faith well, it's going to happen as we throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles us. You know, oftentimes this passage in Hebrews is looked at as pre-salvation kind of thought process. If we just look to Jesus, we'll be saved, and that is so accurate. But in this particular case, we are called to fix our eyes on Jesus post-coming to him. Our fixing our eyes on him are meant to help us as we continue in this faith journey that we began when we first placed our eyes on him. So how do we mature in our faith? How do we keep on keeping on even when we continue to sin? I want you to think about it for just a moment. Deep within your heart of hearts, you're not going to say this to anybody but yourself, but what are those sins in your life? What are those things that continue to come back and wrap around you and entangle you and keep you from running this race of faith? Maybe they're sins of a spiritual form. I mean, after all, Paul wrote that our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against powers and principalities, authorities, powers of this dark world, against spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. And I want you to think about that Colosseum, if you've seen pictures of it, or think about maybe, I don't know, Hokie Stadium, you know, or a football stadium or arena where you're in there and you're looking down on this playing field and imagine yourself as the player on the field. That you're standing there on this field of life just minding your own business and all of a sudden from nowhere fear comes up and grabs you from behind and puts you in a chokehold. I think it's why we say I'm scared to death or I'm scared stiff or I can't. That's what fear does to us. It arrests us. Fear is what kept the Israelites wandering in the wilderness for 40 years when they should have been experiencing milk and honey in a land of plenty. Fear is what kept the Israelites from defeating the Philistines when they focused on Goliath. Fear is what caused big old strong Peter, a big fisherman who swore he wouldn't deny Christ, to deny Jesus that night of his arrest. Fear has a way of crippling us and holding us back. Fear causes us to focus on the size of our problem or the situation in front of us rather than looking past it and focusing on the size of our God. In 2 Timothy 1.7 we read, God has not given us a spirit of fear or timidity, but of power, of love, and of self-discipline. When we find ourselves entangled by a sin in the arena of life, we look to Moses who the writer of Hebrews said, when he had grown up, refused to be known as the son of Pharaoh's daughter. He chose to be mistreated along with the people of God rather than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. He regarded disgrace for the sake of Christ as of greater value than the treasures of Egypt because he was looking ahead to his reward. By faith, 
he saw him who is invisible. And we can take a lesson when fear wraps us up from Moses. What a great example to follow and to look past that fear and to look at the invisible God who is bigger than that fear. If we will just keep our eyes fixed on him. Maybe the spiritual battle in your mind is driven by doubt. That doubt has a firm grip on your life. Like its partner fear, doubt has a way of crippling us and causes us to miss out on some of the blessings that God has in store for us to enjoy and in store for us to participate in. My goodness, I have dealt with that over the last several months. Matthew gives an account of a time when the disciples were on a boat. They were being tossed around by the waves and their circumstances had become, man, scary. Suddenly they saw Jesus walking toward them. Matthew records it this way. Shortly before dawn, Jesus went out to them walking on the lake. When the disciples saw him, they cried out in fear. But Jesus immediately said to them, take courage. It is I. Don't, don't be afraid. Lord, if it's you, Peter replied, then tell me to come to you on the water. Come, Jesus said. Peter got out of the boat, walked on the water. But then, then he saw the waves. And he took his eyes off of Jesus and he began to sink and he cried out, Lord, save me. And immediately Jesus reached out his hand and caught him and said, you of little faith, why do you doubt? Doubt keeps us from fixing our eyes on Jesus and from experiencing the good rewards and the things that he has in store for us if we allow it to. Fear and doubt want to drag you down. They want to drown you and keep you from experiencing the things of God. The enemy wants nothing more than to keep you from being able to fight the good fight and to finish the race keeping the faith. So when he attacks, listen to Moses, listen to Peter, listen to the other disciples who have run this race ahead of you. Hear them shouting from the stand saying, you've got this, just fix your eyes on Jesus and it'll be okay. Maybe the sin that entangles you is more of a physical issue. Maybe it deals with lust of the heart or some kind of sexual immorality. You're not alone. A prostitute named Rahab is listed in the Heroes Hall of Fame. A guy named David, who obviously had an issue with a wandering eye and imagination and acting out on sin, is listed in the Heroes Hall of Faith. So take heart. But understand, technology is not going anywhere. It's only going to continue to become more sophisticated, causing you to stumble. So take a lesson from Rahab, whose scripture says, feared what God could do more than what man could do. Take a lesson from David, who when he repented, he pleaded to God. And we read it in Psalm 51, create in me a pure heart, O God. Renew a steadfast spirit within me. Do not cast me from your presence or take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and grant me a willing spirit to sustain me. Then I will teach your transgressors your ways so that sinners will turn back to you. Isn't that what sin that creeps up and wraps us up and entangles us does? It pulls away the joy of our salvation and all of a sudden we're not experiencing that relationship 
that we once had with the Father. When you're tempted and feeling entangled by physical issues of sin, listen to their voices shouting from the bleachers, just fix your eyes on Jesus. Be like the psalmist when he wrote, I will conduct the affairs of my house with a blameless heart. I will not look with approval on anything that is vile. But then there's the things of this world. The things of this world can become sin that entangle us and trip us up and keeping us from experiencing all that God has in store for us. Demas in the New Testament, Paul mentions him as a faithful servant serving alongside Paul, Luke, and some others. But then Demas is remembered at the end when Paul's life was coming to an end and he's calling for Timothy to come to him quickly and he says, for Demas has deserted me because of his love for the world. Our love for the world and the things in this world can entangle us and trip us up and cause us to miss out on what God has for us. When your financial situation has a tight grip and you feel like you can't breathe and you just begin to chase after that almighty dollar no matter what the cost. Remember that scripture says the love of money, not money, but the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. According to Timothy, some people eager for money have wandered from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. Be careful of the things of this world. They'll try to trip you up and entangle you. When you're tempted to lie or to cheat in some fashion, whether it's in a competition or a test or getting ahead in your career or at tax time, if you're all wrapped up and needing to be popular at any cost, or maybe you feel like you need to be part of the in crowd and know and share all the latest news, otherwise known as gossip, remember to listen to the saints of the past who according to Hebrews, through faith conquered kingdoms, administered justice, gained what was promised, whose weakness isn't that what sin does? It causes us to be weak, whose weakness was turned to strength. And allow them to remind you to fix your eyes on Jesus. So how, how do we do this? Let me just share three ways in which I do this in my own life personally. It's a struggle. I'm not going to lie to you. It's something that I work at daily. The first is by spending time in God's word and allowing it to help keep you focused on him. I mean, Psalm 119, 9 through 11, how can a young person stay on the path of purity? By living according to your word. I seek you with all my heart. Do not let me stray from your commands. I have hidden your word in my heart so I might not sin against you. When Jesus was led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted, it was God's word that he used to fight back the temptations that Satan was throwing his way. When the religious leaders tried to trip Jesus up and catch him in a snare, it was God's word that he continued to bring them back around to as a way of reminding them. So if we're going to keep our eyes focused on Jesus, it begins as we keep our eyes fixed on his word. It's the word of God that I've been using heavily throughout this message just to prove that point. 
when you fix your eyes on Jesus by using the word. It's amazing what begins to transform in your life. When we spend time in his word, we are reminded of how big he is in comparison to the issues that we're facing. We're reminded that he already took our sin on himself, that sin that seeks to entangle us and trip us up and keep us from experiencing his joy. He's already taken that on the cross. And so we keep our eyes fixed on him. When we spend time in his word, we're reminded of others who have fought the fight, finished the race, and we're encouraged in our own faith journey. And I got to tell you, it's been a struggle changing habits in my life. But I personally find it easier to keep my eyes fixed on Jesus when I take them off of Facebook and spend more time with my face in the book. It's amazing what social media can do to trip us up and entangle us. So fix your eyes on Jesus. We keep our eyes fixed on Jesus when we go to him and spend time with him in prayer. The psalmist, man, the psalmist were great at pouring out their hearts to God. Answer me when I call to you, my righteous God. Give me relief from my distress. Have mercy on me. Hear my prayer. Man, Paul wrote those words that were so familiar. Don't be anxious for anything, but in thanksgiving through prayer and petition, make your requests made known to God. And the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. We fix our eyes on him as we spend time with him in prayer. It's amazing what happens when we spend time talking and listening to Jesus. All of a sudden, his spirit within us begins to convict the spirit in us. And we begin to recognize sin for what it is. The Spirit of Christ within us convicts us of what we're about to enter into or what we've just stepped into, and then we have a decision to make. Do I continue down this path in disobedience, or do I fix my eyes on Jesus? We can keep our eyes fixed on Jesus by sharing our struggles with others. If you're not part of a Sunday school group in this church, why not? If you're not part of a men's small group or a women's small group, why not? It's in those small groups that we find community. It's in those small groups that we share life together. It's in those small groups that we're willing to be transparent and open ourselves up. It's in those moments where we discover relationships that allow us to be real and relationships that we can be open with and relationships that can hold us accountable. We share our struggles with one another, and we give these friends permission to ask us the tough questions in our life. James says, confess your sins to each other, pray for each other, so that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person is powerful and effective. The writer of Hebrews describes Jesus as the author, the pioneer, the originator of our faith, and the finisher of our faith. And when we look to Jesus, we are saved and we're brought into a relationship with him. But looking to Jesus is more than just that. When we look 
to Jesus, we're putting our trust in him rather than ourselves. It means we're putting our faith and our trust in a God, especially when we're being attacked by sin. A God who is bigger than that sin. A God who took that sin to the cross. All we need to do is fix our eyes on him. Since Christ is the author, the finisher of our faith. Trusting him releases his power in our lives. Jesus is not just our example to follow. He is the one who enables us to continue to run this race of faith. We fix our eyes on Jesus. Because I can't make these adjustments on my own. That sin that just keeps coming back and tempting me. That sin that keeps wrapping me up, sucker punching me. That sin that keeps, I keep repenting and it keeps coming back. I try to fix it and I can't because I can't. It's only when I put my faith and my trust in Jesus and when I allow him to fix it. When I keep my eyes focused on him. That all of a sudden. That issue's not as big. So friends and family here at Bonsite Baptist. as my ministry with you comes to a conclusion. These are the words I want you to hear. Thank you. Thank you for challenging, encouraging, and helping me to grow in my faith journey. Thank you for pushing me to keep my eyes fixed on Jesus. For encouraging me to run the race that's marked out before me even at this moment. Thank you for loving me, for loving my family. I know we've said too much at times. I know there have been times where we haven't said enough and times where we didn't say anything. Thank you for loving us unconditionally. And it's all been said, I know that. And I hope you know of my love for you. Paul wrote in his letter to Philemon, your love has given me great joy and encouragement because you have refreshed the hearts of the Lord's people. And next Sunday when I stand in a different pulpit, my heart will be refreshed as a result of your love. So keep your eyes fixed on Jesus so that when you come to the end, when it's all been said and done, you'll be able to say, I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I've kept the faith. Let's pray together. God, we thank you for your word that reminds us, that challenges us, that encourages us. Keep the faith. Father, I thank you for your word that binds us together even though we are in different places from here on out. But Father, I know that as we continue to chase after you, our hope for eternity, that when that moment comes, when we leave this place, at some point we'll all be together again. We'll all be worshiping together again. 
around your throne. What a beautiful moment that will be. Father, in the meantime, help us to keep our eyes fixed on Jesus, the pioneer, the author and the finisher of our faith, in whose name we pray. Amen. We're going to close this hour of worship out by standing and singing together. It's an invitation for you to respond to the moving of the Spirit in your life. That's what happens when we fix our eyes on Jesus. The Spirit moves. And so maybe you're in this place and you've never invited Jesus into your heart to be your Lord and Savior. Why not? What's keeping you from doing that today? If you're not sure what to say, just come talk to me. I'll help you. Fixing our eyes on Jesus begins as we look to him on that Roman cross and say, forgive me of my sins and come to live within me. So if you have a decision to invite Christ into your heart today, or maybe you have and you just want us to celebrate with you, we'd love to do that. Would you come forward and share that in just a moment? Maybe you're here and like many times in my life, I've been confronted with this moment where I've got to say, God, if I'm going to be real with you, I haven't had my eyes fixed on you lately and I need to. Or maybe the Spirit's tugging at the strings of your heart this morning, calling you to a moment of recommitment and rededication, maybe to the altar to pray or to pray with somebody. And you just know you need to take care of that before you leave this place today. Maybe this is the place where God's calling you to be part of this body of believers as together you continue to share the gospel message to help others to fix their eyes on Jesus, to encourage one another to keep your eyes fixed and to hold one another accountable. And through statement of faith or transfer of letter, you just come and be part of this body of believers as Paul and Jerry McDaniel did in the first hour. Maybe there's some other decision that God's laid on your heart and you just know you need to take care of that before you leave this place today. You have something that needs to be done, some business that needs to be done in order to fix your eyes on him. Let's take care of that during this moment of invitation as we stand and sing together. Mm -hmm.